On July 28, 1975, when Ugandan President Idi Amin became chairman of the Organization of African Unity, only three countries formally boycotted, Botswana, Tanzania, and Zambia. <clears throat> Tanzanian President Julius Nyerere openly accused Idi Amin of committing mass atrocities against Africans, crimes that he argued were ignored because they lacked a racial basis. For his part, Amin denied these allegations and claimed that Nyerere had been told a lot of lies by Ugandan exiles living in Dar es Salaam. Unlike Nyerere, the heads of 19 states, including leaders of Algeria, Egypt, Ethiopia, Guinea, and Zaire were present in Addis Ababa to cheer Amin. Yet off the record, some delegates claimed that attendance was low and their colleagues had engaged in a quote, fence straddling operation of an act, uh, instead of, short of an actual boycott. Amin's coup, the expulsion of tens of thousands of Asians and Israelis before them, atrocities against those trapped within Uganda, all of these had failed to stir most African leaders to stake a public position of opposition. While exiled Ugandans had organized against Amin, African moral agency did not seem to extend to expelled Asians, many who found themselves in resettlement camps in the UK. The Pan-African OAU accepted that Asians did not belong in or to Africa. Although Idi Amin's seizure of power caused rifts notably with Tanzania and coincided with wider African tensions over ties to Israel, African members of the OAE in 1973 adopted a 10-year plan to resolve their disputes peacefully and to rid Africa of foreign bases and to seek black Arab alignment. To open this event on the 50th anniversary of the Asian expulsion, I want to explore Idi Amin's strategy of making the economically secure Asians in Uganda insecure and vulnerable, materially, physically, territorially, as a part of Afrocentrism. Afrocentrism meant not only an African vantage point on history, but also the confrontation with the disposition, dispossession of Black selfhood, as Sarah Balakrishnan argues. Throughout the African continent, Afrocentrism was an unstable yet very powerful concept, one discredited even at times of popularity as anti-racist racism, famously by Sartre. The long history of Afrocentric thought has been well explored, and my interest today is in examining how it was informed not just by European imperialism and white supremacy, but also by Asians and their relationship to Blackness. Articulating Afro-Asian difference, based not only on, on, on skin color as in Euro-American Euro logic, but on a civilizational past, a genealogy, religion, kinship, and a condition of oppression, as Mamadou Jouf and Ginny Preis have argued, define the post-colonial condition, not only in Africa, but also in South Asia. If we consider just a few decades before the expulsion, Indians had accepted black politics. Afrocentrism and Pan-Africanism that inspired intense collective organization against Italian aggression in Ethiopia, for example, apartheid in South Africa and decolonization in Sub-Saharan Africa had included Indians in these struggles. So how and when did in Asians, Indians, South Asians become a target of Afrocentrists? This is the question that I want to explore. I showed that the period from 1947, after World War II and with Indian independence, partition of the Indian subcontinent, to 1970, that is the period from 1947 to 1970, the high point of Afro-Asian solidarity 
was ironically the most unstable in the relationship between Africans and South Asians. It was in this time in which racialization of Indians in Africa intensified. While others have argued that this racialism resulted from black nationalism or, Af or a version of Afrocentrism, I suggest that this anti-Asianism was not inevitable or even intrinsic to black politics. Rather, both African and Indian identities were constructed through their potential for assimilating others. In the mid 20th century, black, blackness as an identity came to be understood as a possibility for Asians, whereas Indianness came to signify exclusion. And that's what I would like to trace today, how this opposition was created. In focusing, in focusing on the meaning and the racialization and constructedness of these ideas in a particular historical moment, I have emphasized here how African and Indian identities have been co-constructed as racial, cultural, and social categories. In other words, that it's very difficult to separate this very int intimate relationship and that they, their identities have been co-made in relation to each other. So I wanna first start uh, by talking uh, tracing how India becomes, uh, uh, goes from a sense of, um, uh, from African perception of India as a more fluid concept to a certain kind of closure after 1947. In East Africa, the idea of an Asian peril grew from the 1920s as Indians began to settle throughout the mainland in railway towns and rural outposts, opening shops and bringing wives and children. The British stoked fears of Indian colonization and in South Africa, a similar situation arose with changing settlement patterns. Although the demographic challenge came more from Africans moving into Durban, as John Soski describes, where Afro-Indian intimacies were present, but inferior transportation, housing, and employment for Africans heightened tensions over material conditions. The off-cited remark of Harry Johnston, special commissioner for Yolanda of the colony as a possible America of the Hindu, has significance from, for African perspectives that I argue many have missed. Drawing attention to the Hindu face of India was an intentional strategy of othering, of a racialization of a people by a religion to which one could not convert and to which blood kinship was seen as paramount, tying economic and religious identities, uh, which also of course implied a parallel to Jews. This was not missed on Africans. Indeed, Hinduism was not the primary association with Indians in all of Africa. In British West Africa, for example, Gold Coast, Nigeria, and Sierra Leone, in, starting from the 1920s, Islam was actually more strongly associated with Asians, uh, particularly Asian men as the movements of Punjabi and Pathan soldiers, railway workers, and missionaries of the Ahmadiyya missionary movement attest. Hinduism existed only in traces and far outside of public culture. In, write, in images and writings by African intellectuals about Indian civilization. To Africans, India and Indians were not yet a fixed category. An African idea of Hindu India began to crystallize, I argue, in the 1940s with Gandhi's brand of activism, with Muslim League agitation and the Kashmir crisis, and with Indian independence and partition. There are a range of African reactions to India as a religious problem. Christian Ethiopian suspicion of Muslim Indian ambitions in Ethiopia, and Muslim West Africans suspicion of India as hostile to religious minorities. In 1955, India's first, the Indian government's first press attache in West Africa, Mahesh Jibran, 
wrote, at every party that the British had arranged for me, I met Nigerians who were as suspicious about India as perhaps a Nigerian nationalist would be about the bona fides of the British intentions. Repeatedly, when I saw men who accused Pandit Nehru of imperialism in Kashmir, in Goa, and in other parts of Southeast Asia, I could not but conclude that all these receptions and all these parties were a deliberate attempt to impress upon me that the people of Nigeria were not so blindly the followers of India as was, as was perhaps believed by some people in the world. There was a strong desire to know about the plans for Pakistan. The question of minorities in India, of refugees, of violence, religious violence, and India's divisions shaping a larger diaspora into Africa, whether this diaspora be Hindu or Muslim, was not lost on Africans at that time. Viewed from a continental scale, the African ideas of Indians show that the British racial order, whites at the top, Asian intermediaries, and Africans at the bottom, was not the only frame through which African-Asian relations were negotiated. Africans saw ideas of identity tied closely to religious sensibilities and separations. Making India Hindu had the effect of othering Indians and exacerbating Afro-Indian tensions. And as I will show shortly, Indians' supposed conservatism and segregationism uh, with the implication of cultural backwardness became a discourse that Amin would cite. Against this backdrop of African anxieties about Indian independence, of course, African economic grievance against Indian shop owners grew. This is a topic that has been fairly well studied. Starting in the 1940s, especially after World War II, African boycotts of foreigner shops grew more intense. In Gold Coast, the anti-inflation campaign targeted Indian and Lebanese shops, and in 1949, riots in Durban in South Africa led to great loss of Indian lives and property. But this was not simply economic competition and inequality. The cultural and social distance between Africans and Indians had become clearer, especially to African soldiers who served in World War II in India and whose roles in boycotts and strikes once they were back in Africa in decolonization were, are well documented. African veterans told stories through newspapers published in Africa uh, of their time in India and Burma, not just about poor treatment by they suffered from the hands of the British and Indians, but they also understood their own societies differently in comparison to India as a place of large, what they saw as largely poor, traditional and superstitious people who stared at them and mocked them on the streets. These Africans saw themselves as modern and Indians as traditional. And Nehru's government struggled to understand how the government of India should position itself in Africa with, against this consideration of India as not better than African societies or, or more sophisticated. The secularists in Nehru's foreign affairs ministry argued that it India should not promote our way of living and thinking with special emphasis on our philosophy of life, because what exactly this meant was not clear. What was India? Even Nehru's government was struggling with this idea. This one, the one minister reasoned that Indians in East and Central Africa lived like Europeans in any way, not like the Indian masses. Yet to African observers and critics of Indians, the refusal of Asians to isolate uh, to, to um, the refusal of, in, of Indians to merge their cultural identities uh, and, and economic activities compared less favorably even to European Christians or Arab Muslims who might have, have converted them. 
Conversion was possible and knowable in a way that Hinduism as, a, as an increasingly definitive characteristic of India did not allow. So I wanna turn next to, uh, the, to from this period to the 1960s uh, as these tensions were rising. By the 1960s, which was the decade of independence for the majority of African colonies, Afrocentrism increasingly meant Africanization in a number of realms. The changing of names, notably to Christian names to indigenous ones, the transfer of economic interests to African governments, the handover of religious organizations, notably Western Christian missions, including schools and hospitals to African church and secular authorities. Also by the, by the early 16, 1960s, Asians in East Africa were gripped by fears of Africanization, which included a, a, which was a set of practices that Asians found impossible to understand outside a purely reactionary politics. Indian origin Moscow correspondent to the Spectator and Indian Express, Dev Murarka, blamed Indian settlers who sided with the Europeans and quoted an Indian Kenyan from June 1960 saying, quote, we should not be placed in a situation by which we may have to exchange the, the domination of white racialism for that of black racialism with the significant difference that while the former is benevolent, satisfied, contented, civilized, experienced in the art of human justice and fairness, the latter is narrow-minded, greedy, hungry, frustrated, grasping, suffering from a supposed sense of grievance, violent in heart and capable of slipping back to tribal savagehood. The racialization of Africans by Asians in this way was not shaped, was also shaped in part by propaganda of whites in apartheid South Africa who obviously feared black nationalism, as well as Americans. Whereas the British had positioned themselves as a defender of Africans in the face of Asian colonization in the 1920s and 30s, Americans positioned themselves as racially conscious in a way that Africans were, were not, I'm sorry, that Asians were not. Go to my first slide. Afro-Asian solidarity declared in Bandung in 1955 and the non-aligned movement formalized in 1961 struck fear among Americans who recognized black nationalism as a potential bulwark against Afro-Asian solidarity. Thus complaints of Indian racism, as you see in this Washington Post article among African students were heavily reported. Indians such as Malcolm Adisechaya of UNESCO and Americans with whom he worked recognized the reluctance of African students to accept Indian government scholarships through the 1960s. American political scientist Vernon McKay, who worked for the US State Department from 1948 to 1956, kept tabs on African students studying in India who numbered just in the hundreds and represented all regions of the continent, not just East Africa, the Horn and South Africa, but also Ghana, Nigeria, Togo, and the British Cameroons. So the United States was deeply interested in how Africans were treated in India um, as an expression of potential, as a, as a possibility of potential race conflict. Uh, the Japanese were also represented uh, as exploitative of Africans. And this is where, you know, I. The, the broader Asian, the idea of Asian is important. This article by an American journalist published in 1970 highlights the Japanese economic activity burgeoning all over the continent. 
with a with including a proposal to build a railway from Ni from Lagos in Nigeria to Mombasa in Kenya. Yet this article also contains a warning that the Japanese willingness to trade and do business with the white ruled states of Southern Africa, South Africa and Rhodesia could spell trouble. The, the American writer, freelance journalist Nicholas Stroh wrote, the message of African states to Japan is that someday Japan will have to choose between the white enclaves of the South and black Africa to the North. Japan, and he quoted a, a, a West African economist, supposedly, West Japan must understand our position regarding minority regimes or face the consequences, report, uh, this, this economist reportedly told the journalist. The American writer of this article in a Ugandan newspaper, uh, Nicholas Stroh incidentally went missing in 1971 and his body was found burned along with that of another American, Robert Seidel, a sociologist who was a lecturer at Makarere University. Idi Amin performed a symbolic gesture of an investigation but it was only later that Seidel's son, who Seidel's son learned that the two Americans had met with a known CIA officer the night before their disturbance, their disappearance. It is hard to ignore that a constellation of factors, some internal and some external, made Afro-Indian relations worse in the very era of Afro-Asian solidarity before and leading up to Idi Amin's coup and afterward. The Asian diaspora out of East Africa began in the 1960s as threats to Asians took various forms of insult and many uh, wondered about their, their ability to fit into African communities. Tarsus B. Kabwagere, a Ugandan scholar and political activist, presented a paper titled The Asian Question in Uganda at the meeting of the Historical Association of Kenya in 1973 and quoted the chairman of the Uganda People's Congress and MP for Toro, Mr. Babiha, as telling his constituents, quote, these Asians should stop behaving in an unbecoming manner and should fit in with the African community. Kabwagere, an activist against Amin and the Save Uganda movement, certainly had no love for the autocrat, but expl explained Amin's political expectation for Indians to fit in as arising from an African view of citizenship as a kind of affective kinship into which Af Indians could assimilate. He and Ali Mazruri proposed that Amin's view was shaped by his peasant rural life in, in his upbringing, in which intermarriage and labor arrangements were mechanisms for incorporating strangers. It was from this thinking that Amin wanted Asians to experience uh, Uganda or have the experience of leaving cities to live in villages. Rather, the uh, Kabogere noted, Indians look to Asia, uh, Asians look to India and the necessary psychological reorientation from being favored British subjects to Ugandan in citizens was not complete. According to his figures, by 1968, less than one third of more than 90,000 Asians had applied for Ugandan citizenship and only about 15,000 had received it. And almost all were doing business, but without any political citizenship. This in spite of the fact that Nehru and Asian members of the Ugandan parliament uh, argued that Asians should become Africans. <clears throat> Uh, Kabwagere also argued that Asians who did not Im immediately embrace Ugandan citizenship were showing themselves to be non-participants in African independence. The analysis of Kabwagere, sociologist and politician, shows logics of Afrocentrism that were understandable to Africans when it came to the expulsion of Asians. For his part, Ali Mazrui, in a paper titled Nation Building and Race Building, Israel and Amin's Uganda as Racially Purist, 
presented in the, at the De December 1973 meeting of the International Congress of Africanists in Addis Ababa, contrasted Amin's notion of blackness with Zionism, arguing that Amin initially hoped that Africans and Asians would integrate into an independent Uganda by mingling blood and creating kinship through physical closeness. But Indians rejected this, uh, and which is what led him to declare in 1971, Amin, I'm aware that one of the causes of the continuing distance in social relations between the Asians and the Africans in this country was the policy of the colonial government, which ensured that Africans, Asians, and Europeans had entirely separate schools, hospitals, residential quarters, social and sports clubs, and even public toilets with facilities reserved for Africans being of the poorest quality. We have, of course, changed all this, but there are Asians who still live in the past and consider, like the former colonialist government, that the Africans are below them. This living in the past cannot help Asians in any way, nor can it foster the desired harmony and unity among races in Uganda. For Amin, Indians had not accepted Blackness as a political practice. Mazrui concluded that Amin grew into a Black nationalist. Grew into one was not naturally one which is demonstrated by his relations, his, his navigation of relations with North Africans, Israelis, and Asians, and other, and, and other Sub-Saharan Africans. In the end, he found greater bonds with Black Americans than with Ugandan Asians. The Asian diaspora unwittingly catalyzed African diasporic consciousness and its expressions in Afrocentrism and Pan-Africanism. Uh, North, Af uh, North Africans, Libyans, and Egyptians <clears throat> pictured here, took the place of Asians in Uganda, signaling the reunification of the continent and constructing North African acceptance of Black power, which itself is contradicted by history. Afrocentrism required a reckoning with and rewriting of history. What part Asians took in this writing was, the rewriting was ambivalent. To conclude, I return to the idea that Africans took no position or sat on the fence on the Asian expulsion as they sensed Asians wholesale rejection of Afrocentrism, that is because of a conflict of interest. Africans also understood that independence in the Indian subcontinent had exposed divisions and weaknesses and the Indian diaspora's sense of and claim to homeland was fractured and damaged. Seeing India broken in this way, some Africans could not understand Indians refusal to embrace Africa as a homeland and to recognize blackness in the way Africans did. Idi Amin's version of Afrocentrism would not have existed without Asians. The expulsion violently birthed a new sense of racial oppression Asians had been accused of lacking. As Mahmoud Mamdani wrote just after the expulsion, gradually a primitive racial solidarity emerged out of a common racial predicament, the color, the color of one's skin. Thank you.